Hey everybody, it's David Pluff. Welcome to Campaign HQ. Well, we are now uh, T-minus 19 uh, days till the election day, but of course, um, we don't have election day in this country. We have the election, so let's start there. We've had, uh, I'm talking to you on Wednesday. Um, I'm recording this on Wednesday. I think we're north of 13 million votes now. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue to see that number increase. So, you know, by this time next week, you know, I'm sure it'll be north of, of 20. And, that, and that's a big change. So, you know, early vote um, is, is obviously in states like Oregon uh, and Utah and Washington. Uh, everybody votes by mail. Um, uh, you know, some early, some later in the, the period. Um, early vote in person has been increasingly used to expand you know, despite the Republican efforts to, to end it or suppress it. Um, but I think a couple things, we're just going to see a lot more people voting pre-election day, but clearly people are also voting really early in the window. Uh, you know, my wife and I filled out our ballot uh, last night. I, I uh, took it in today. Um, and, you know, we, you know, I feel like we were late because, you know, it took us three days to get to that. <laughs> I'm sure many of you feel the same way. Um, so, uh, you know, that's important for uh, for a few reasons. One, you know, it's vote coming off the table. So Trump's behind. And so, um, you know, if 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 there's, you know, 40, 50, 60 million people uh, vote early, and it could be more than that, and certainly some states it's going to be well, well north of 50%. That means even in the unlikely scenario that somehow the race really tightens and Trump closes strong and Biden struggles, you know, uh, he's going to have to really overperform with the people left on the table. So that's important. And number two, you know, there's journalists and, and data experts who, who who are starting to analyze the early vote. And again, what, what campaigns know, and this is all publicly available data, so, uh, you know, early vote experts like Michael McDonald, who I had on last week, you know, they can look at who's voting, um, who's newly registered, what parties, where there's party registration on the file, are they regular voters or not. And the analysis so far seems to suggest that Democrats are having better luck getting uh, sort of their non-regular votes to vote early. It is early, so we'll see if the Republican number uh, improves. Um, but also, at the end of the day, I think, you know, we see cases ticking up, coronavirus cases all around the country. And I think we're going to look back on this as, as Trump uh, has committed a feat of epic malpractice, because my suspicion is there'll be more of his voters who intend to vote on election day, who, if cases continue to spike, might not vote, you know, but they didn't apply for an absentee ballot because Trump told them, uh, to, you know, that it was uh, fraudulent. So, uh, you know, my guess is, um, yeah, it's not going to be millions of people, but in a close race, even something like that can make a difference. So so people are voting. The election uh, is here. Um, we don't have a debate this week. We, we were supposed to have a debate on Thursday. Uh, Trump uh, backed out because he didn't want to do a virtual debate. Um, which I think was a big mistake because he's behind in the race, had a bad first debate. You want to have an opportunity as quickly as possible to get back on your front foot. So we'll be down to one debate next week. Uh, you know, in lieu of that, uh, Biden's doing a, a town hall on Thursday uh, with ABC, Trump with, with NBC. Um, there, there's uh, just this morning, again, I'm taping this Wednesday, you know, some folks upset um, with NBC and, I, and I'm, an, I'm an analyst for NBC, so I want to state that uh, clearly. Um, but to me, the question would be, uh, I'm not sure... Um, you know, anybody who wants to see Trump defeated should be upset about Trump being in front of voters. <laughs> like, um, and I'll, I'll talk to our guest about that today. But uh, my sense is every interview Trump does, every rally he does, 
uh, is just reinforcing the reasons a lot of people uh, are leaving him. Some people who voted for him in 16, some people who voted third party, the people who entered this campaign truly swing. So this is a case where, you know, more exposure uh, is not a good exposure, uh, is my view. Uh, you know, and, and even if Trump were to get more disciplined, um, he can't help himself. Uh, and the fact that he's out, you know, no matter what he says, the visuals of these big rallies where people aren't wearing masks, you know, his base may like that, but I think for the rest of the country, it underscores one of their chief concerns about him is his recklessness um, and his narcissism. Uh, and so um, that's really, for me, the only opportunity Trump has to at all um, tighten this race is the debate next Thursday. That's it. Because I think his interviews he's doing with Fox personalities, these rallies, um, not really reaching out beyond uh, beyond his core. Um, you know, so I think we're left with, I get asked all the time, how can Trump win? Um, you've got obviously, uh, you know, Dave Wasserman's of the world, Steve Kornacki's, Nate Silver's, others who are state experts, uh, you know, do some good work to, to remind us, A, you know, Trump still does have a chance. It's not a great chance, but it may be even, you know, as equal or better than the chance he had last time. Um, uh, although, it, you know, every day these leads persist. There was a poll today having him up. Uh, Biden's up seven in Georgia, according to Quinnipiac. I don't believe Biden's up seven in Georgia. Uh, but what's clear is um, in a lot of these uh, states and Trump's in Georgia on Friday, the fact that Trump's in Georgia on Friday uh, is a DEFCON 1 situation for that campaign. Uh, he should be nowhere near Georgia uh, this close to the election. So they're, they, they're worried about Georgia. Uh, and clearly there's a pathway that the Trump campaign sees for Joe Biden to win it, which is so incredibly exciting. Uh, you know, Trump is, uh, you know, been in Ohio, again, playing, playing defense. And so, um, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, every day that passes, particularly as people are voting early, uh, narrows Trump's odds. But, you know, the, the one hope he still has, and I've talked a lot about this, is just somehow he's able to, in Wisconsin, um, you know, get 200,000 extra votes than he did last time solely on, you know, uh, the registration they've done to date and turning out non-college uh, men in particular, some women. Um, and, and you know, Pennsylvania is the same. Uh, there's parts of Florida with huge populations there, parts of North Carolina in the rural areas, um, Iowa, Ohio. So, you know, uh, I won't be confident about where this race is heading until we start to see real vote on election night getting counted and unpacked. And we see that uh, Trump has not created that kind of historic turnout he needs. And then I'll get really confident. And we'll know that early as we start seeing real votes being counted in states like Virginia, which won't be a battleground state, but um, we'll learn some uh, things from that from Indiana. And then uh, certainly as Florida and Pennsylvania start reporting votes. So I think that's his last hope because he is showing no interest, ability, um, or success uh, trying to win swing voters. I mean, let's just let's look at this week. Biden goes to Florida, message of NAM squarely at senior voters in that state around the country. Uh, and what does Trump does? He he trumps it. He, he sends out some meme, uh, you know, that says Biden for president, but it X's out the P and it says Biden resident. And it's like a picture of Joe Biden in a nursing home, like basically just making fun of seniors in homes. Terrible. Same thing with suburbs. You know, I, I've said before, you know, this notion that Biden's going to kill the suburbs is a ridiculous message. But, you know, he's uh, Trump's in Pennsylvania last night, plaintively asking for um, suburban women to love him. I saved the suburbs. Uh, just pathetic uh, and desperate. So uh, I, I think the swing voter, um, 
you know, pulling some seniors away from Biden who are in his camp right now. Like, I think the time is largely over for that. And so his one hope is Biden gets weaker than expected turnout. People make mistakes in their mail ballots, mostly on the Democratic side. And Trump somehow gets historical turnout that will blow us all away. Um, now, I don't think that's likely, but it ought to keep everybody working because, um, you know, there are enough people out there where if Trump were to get some absurdly high turnout number, um, this race could get close. Uh, and I think that's really where the focus has to be here and is making sure that everybody's doing everything they can um, to help with with turnout. Um, so, uh, you know, the debate next Thursday will be the last major moment in the campaign. So everybody should get their viewing plans together for that. I have no idea how to assess what Trump will do. Will he just double down on the rabid dog, um, you know, kind of asshole jerk, uh, you know, uh, approach? Uh, will he try and be more subdued and, you know, talk about a second term agenda to the extent he can find one? Will We'll see. Um, uh, but I know the Biden camp will be, you know, hopefully very well prepared for that. I'm sure they will because they understand that um, that is Trump's last real opportunity uh, to shift the dynamics of this race. So our guest today is Kate Bedingfield, who's the deputy campaign manager uh, for Joe Biden. She's been with Joe Biden all the way through the primary, through the, the times back in the, the end of 19 and early 20. Uh, where he was still the national front runner, but didn't do well in Iowa and New Hampshire. And um, people were questioning, uh, you know, whether he could still be viable. And, and they pulled off that remarkable result in South Carolina and then really rolled up primary victories. Um, you know, she was worked in presidential campaigns for John Edwards uh, back in 04, worked in the White House, led communications for the Motion Picture Association. So uh, just a really skilled communicator. And I really want to focus my discussion with Kate on that, who they're trying to reach how they assess uh, Trump's events and message opportunities. Talk about the debate a little bit. Um, you know, talk about the best way you all can help uh, deliver message. So I think it'll be a great look at where the Biden campaign sees messaging challenges and opportunities here in the closing uh, 19 days uh, and where the focus is going to uh, really intensify for them uh, from both a state standpoint, a voter co cohort standpoint and an issue standpoint. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kate Bettingfield. Kate Bedingfield, welcome to Campaign HQ. Thanks for having me, David Pluff. I appreciate it. Well, there's so much I want to talk to you about. Um, so I'll start with this, though. I'm just curious. So, um, you know, we saw Trump in Johnstown yesterday. He's now doing a town hall later in the week, eager to get out. You know, my sense is that whether it's the interviews he does with his uh, Fox and Friends or these rallies, it's not helping him, right? And and you and I have been through a lot of races. And when you're behind, you know, generally you're trying to find ways to gain ground. And, um, you know, you hope that voters are still open to you. Kind of how do you guys assess that? I want to get to what you guys are doing. But it does seem like Trump being out there kind of is reinforcing, um, you know, some of the negatives. That's the reason he's trailing in the race. Well, I think it's pretty clear that he does not have a cohesive argument to make for his reelection. I mean, you're exactly right. He's you know, we're in the closing weeks of this race. This is the time when, you know, candidates are making their best, most full-throated argument for either their re-election or to be elected. And, you know, what you get from him is, a, you know, a list of never-ending list of grievances and all the ways he's been wronged. And, you know, you get a lot of his media analysis and what he thinks of what's going on at, you know, at Fox every other week. Um, but you don't get a lot of him speaking to, voters concerns. I mean, if you're, if you are an undecided voter and, you know, it, it seems like there are not many left at this stage of the, of the race, but if you're an undecided voter and you're 
looking at Donald Trump, you're not hearing anything from him about what he's going to do to make your life better. Um, and so, you know, if he wants to use the opportunities that he has to talk directly to voters to, again, you know, to complain about how his media coverage isn't fair, uh, you know, he, he, as far as we're concerned, he can have at it. Um, right, right. So it's an interesting choice, um, but, you know, it's a choice that he's making. Okay, so this will be a distressing request to try to get in the brain of the tr- of the Trump team. So uh, <laughs> my sense is there's not much strategy, or if there is, listen, it's not like everybody who's working for him doesn't know what they're doing, right? You know, th- they have some view of where the race is, and Trump just is not, um, you know, kind of going along. So is there an argument that they've completely given up on both swing voters and you know the soft? Biden voters who you guys have firmed up in the last couple weeks. And this is all just a base play. Now, I would even argue what he's doing out there is not necessarily going to be helpful to get kind of like cynical, um, you know, inactive politically people to vote, which is clearly their game plan. But can can you divine a strategy in what they're doing? I mean, (laughs) this is the like, this is the question, right? Uh, I mean, I think that I think that you're right, that there are people around him who have strategic thinking about what he should be doing and about what his campaign should be doing. It seems very clear to me that every move they make comes directly from Trump. And, you know, I think he is driven by his own um, narcissism. I think he's driven by his own ego. And I think he makes decisions every day based on, you know, what he thinks is going to yield him the best, you know, clip on, on Hannity that night or on Fox and friends the next morning. And, you know, you could call that a base play, I guess. Um, I'm sort of of the mindset that that's maybe even ascribing too much strategic thinking to what they're doing. I think, um, I think at the end of the day, this all flows directly from Trump. He's somebody who, you know, can't see beyond the end of his own nose. He is always only focused on how things impact him. Um, and so, you know, again, it's, it's like they, he's wasting an opportunity to communicate something meaningful, um, to voters because, um, you know, he's so focused on his own, uh, his own political fortune. So I, you know, I, I suppose you could call it a base play. I, I have to imagine that, um, uh, to the extent that it's, you know, energizing voters, it's, it is energizing his base. And look, what I will say, one thing I will say is, we do know that his base will turn out for him. I mean, I think that is, you know, that's an important thing to not lose sight of, um, you know, as we think about what these last few weeks and what election day is going to look like. I mean, you know, he has a very motivated base that um, feels really loyal, loyally toward him. And we know they're going to turn out for him. So we do, you know, we have to be thoughtful about that. And I think we, you know, we forget that at our own peril. Um, now, whether that is strategic on his part or their part, I, right. <laughs> I really cannot say. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I've spoken a, a lot about that. Like, th- th- he's going to get his vote. Now, of course, is he going to get 10% more, you know, kind of than the high water mark? And then the race could be closer or not. But his folks are coming. So uh, we'll come back. We'll come back uh, to the Trump circus. But I want to talk uh, about areas of the, of the Biden campaign. And, you know, you're responsible uh, for these. Uh, obviously, you, you you do it in a collegial way, but you're, you're leading all the message of communications work. Um, and so I want to start with talking about the kind of cohorts of voters. So here we are, um, you know, 19 days out. Uh, you mentioned there's very few undecideds, but there's a few. 
Uh, I'm sure your research is showing there's some people who are saying they're going to vote for Biden or Trump, but they're not 100% there. And then you've got, um, you know, turnout uh, targets and in places where you can still register registration targets. So as you think about kind of the balance, you know, Joe Biden was in Florida talking to seniors uh, on Tuesday. You were in Gettysburg last uh, week. Uh, you've done some climate related messaging. Like what, uh, you know, because it's not just like where you go. It's also what audiences and how do you think about that in terms of where the race is today? There are particular cohorts of voters, obviously, that, um, you know, we are we are especially focused on. Seniors is one you mentioned. Obviously, you know, African-American voters uh, carried Joe Biden to the nomination in the primary. Um, and we are always very focused on making sure that we are, are speaking to the African-American community um, and that they're hearing directly from from Joe Biden. Um, you know, suburban voters are incredibly important. Suburban women um, you know, if you look at the coalition of voters that gave Democrats the House in 2018, you know, that's largely the coalition of voters that carried Joe Biden to, to the nomination in the primary. So, um, you know, so we're always making sure that we are focusing on talking to, to those voters who, um, you know, as Joe Biden would say, to those voters who brung us to the dance. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think the, the, the really interesting thing and, and maybe, you know, in some ways unique thing about Joe Biden's messaging is that, you know, he, he really launched this campaign on the same core messages that he's ending the campaign on. And, you know, he got into the race with a very clear vision about the battle for the soul of the nation, about what he believed that Trump was, um, you know, the existential threat, frankly, that he believed that Trump was posing to our country. Um, but also the, you know, the, he got in the race with a, a focus on building, rebuilding the middle class and, and, you know, rebuilding the backbone of the nation. And those, you know, his ability to connect directly with people on those core issues. So it's, you know, I think of it almost in two buckets. It's the, it's the sort of, um, uh, the the bigger kind of what kind of country do we want to be? You know, who are we as Americans? How do we you know, we have over the course of history, we have always rallied together as Americans. You know, it's, it's appealing to people's sense of patriotism in the soul of the nation argument. And then it's the kitchen table. That's the second bucket. It's the kitchen table. And that's, you know, that has been Joe Biden's bread and butter, his entire, uh, you know, career in public service. He's somebody who's always stood with union workers. He's always been somebody who's been able to, you know, to connect with what's going on with people at their kitchen table to talk about those economic issues. So, um, you know, I think that we we are, I think part of the reason um, that we are where we are in this race right now um, is that Biden has always communicated an incredibly clear sense of why he's running. And he's done it in a way that, you know, that connects with people's people's real lives. So um, when you, you know, when you look at the next uh, period of time here, you've obviously got a debate next week and I want to talk to you about that. Um, he'll be out doing travel. Um Kind of when you think about, um, and you know, you've been in, in politics, uh, you know, and in communications in the private sector for a long time, as you think about, you know, kind of connected to the discussion we were just having about voter courts, like what's the best way to, re you know, the events reach people, you know, particularly I would assume in the state or market you're in, right? You've got interviews, you've got your own content that you're creating. Just how do you evaluate, given where the race is today, um, how you're thinking through leveraging what channels versus others? So first of all, I am a huge believer in local media. Mm -hmm. I'm a huge believer in, you know, everywhere we send the vice president, he does uh, local TV. We always make time for him to talk to the, uh, you know, the, the top 
rated newscast in the market. Usually, usually we do the top and you know the second and the third. Right. I think, I, I think that people, you know, I, I think we we forget that people view, you know, people view their their evening news, their local anchor as a you know, a validator in their community. It's somebody they know. It's somebody they trust. No doubt. It's a, yeah. familiar to them. Um, so, you know, we always, always, sometimes to the the great exasperation of our, our national traveling press corps, um, we always prioritize, uh, we always prioritize local media. Um, and then, you know, especially as we have, have had this campaign has moved from, um, uh, you know, a more traditional campaign into an even more virtual campaign in the pandemic, we have been incredibly focused on um, creating our own content, and we had a a you know a true vision of what Joe Biden and the Joe Biden campaign could look like on the internet. And I, uh, you know, I huge credit to my colleague Rob Flaherty, who uh, you know had, I think had a really strong vision about the idea that we, you know, if the campaign was a battle for the soul of the nation, then our digital work was a battle for the soul of the internet. We were never going to out anger Trump. We were never going to out you know, outrage Trump, we were going to create the kind of content that was true to Biden, that was um, uplifting, that was positive, um, and that, you know, speaks to people in the same way that, you know, uplifting content uh, gets lifted from, you know, an outlet, an outlet like Upworthy, or, um, you know, a Twitter account like Rex Chapman, who lifts all kinds of just great, heartwarming, positive content that goes viral, because people are looking for that kind of, you know, hope and optimism. Um, and we really wanted to build a digital strategy that, uh, you know, that capitalized on that. So, um, you know, so I think it's a, for us, it's a balance of the two. I think, you know, we have to be smart and creative about how we're using our own channels to reach people directly. Um, but, you know, you, you can't, I, I think you, I think you forego doing that local media, getting that local validation, taking those tough questions. I mean, that's, you know, that, that's another benefit to doing local media is, you know, you, you're, you're taking those questions, you're hearing a reflection of what voters in that community are worried about or thinking about, you know, that gets funneled up through the local reporters who are on the ground there. So it helps you sort of, I think, stay in, in better, you know, close contact with what, what people are worried about and what they're thinking about. Um, so, you know, for us, it's really, it's a balance of, of those two things. Right. No, Rex Chapman's Twitter account's been a godsend during this brutal 2020. There's no doubt. Exactly. And I'm not even, good, I, you know, we're talking on, on Wednesday. I'm not going to ask you about that ridiculous Axios story suggesting somehow, you know, Trump's taking a lot more questions because the truth is my experience has been yours, which is the most tough and relevant questions come from local reporters. Um, and um, there's just no question about it because they have a beat on their community. Exactly. So, and he's talking to Sean Hannity. I don't right. I mean, no, I it's like softball city. It really is. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if Joe Biden still uses this uh, saying. I heard it a lot when I worked with him in the White House on the campaign trail. Don't compare me to the Almighty. Compare me to the alternative, right? Yes. And and I think for um, you know a good part of of this campaign, we saw in the research that there was more than enough Americans who wanted to fire Trump, and you know a lot of the work uh, that needed to be done was to get people uh, you know more excited about hiring Biden. And we see in the numbers you've made a lot of progress there. I'm just wondering here, still at this late stage of the campaign, obviously you have one debate, which will be your major weapon uh, to fill this in, but what are the one or two th things that you think, like, I really wish 
we could um, even more effectively or with more reach drill this in? You know, it could be a policy, it could be an attribute, kind of what's the remaining work to be done? And I guess also, like, how can people who are out there committed to helping elect Joe Biden help you do that? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I think there are a couple things. One, um, what we find is that people still don't know his personal story um, as much as we might think that they do. They obviously know, they know who he is. They have a sense of, um, you know, they have a sense of what kind of leader he is. They know, you know, they saw him in the White House with President Obama. They know, you know, his kind of core um, integrity and decency, but they don't know as much about his, his backstory. They don't know as much about his, um, you know, his growing up. They don't know as much about his family. Um, for example, a lot of people don't know that he struggled with a stutter as a child um, and that that was something that really uh, formed the way that he, you know, it, it basically he will say it, it, it gave him a sense of empathy and understanding um, of the struggles that people go through at a very young age that, you know, he doesn't believe he would have if he hadn't gone through that formative, um, you know, experience of, of dealing with a, a stutter and, and working to, to overcome it. Um, so, you know, I think the more, um, the more people can share, you know, if you, um, you know, there, for example, there's a beautiful story, uh, a beautiful interview with um, John Hendrickson of The Atlantic that uh, the VP did last year, in which he talked in great depth about his stutter. If you, if you're, if you see that story online, share it, share it on your, on your uh, social media, you know, tell people about, um, you know, tell people about the things that you personally find compelling about, uh, about Biden, about his biography, about kind of, you know, the kind of person he is. I think the more that we can reinforce for people, you know, the kind of good, decent human he is, um, the better. And, uh, you know, there is, as, as you well know, there is nothing more credible than hearing about somebody from your friend, from your neighbor, from someone you know, and you trust. So, I would say to anybody listening, if you if you want to you know share the good word about uh, about Joe Biden on your social media account, it's incredibly important. And and if you're looking for a place to start, go share the story about his stutter because people don't have as clear a sense of some of his his personal biography. Um, and we find that the more they know about him, and the more they learn about him, and the more they learn about his history, um, the more they like him. So that's one thing. Um, the other thing I would say is just you know broadly. Um, I think the thing that's so important for people to understand is that he, you know, he truly believes that we are not, that our politics are not so hyper-partisan and so broken that we can't overcome this moment. Um, and, you know, it's easy to get cynical. And especially when you look at some of the, you know, when you look at the torrent of, of um, vitriol, frankly, that comes out of the Trump White House every day, um, it's hard not to get disillusioned. Um, but, you know, he, he truly believes, and I think a lifetime of, of working in public service has, has taught him that, you know, you can find a way to work together. You can find a way to make progress on the things that truly matter to you. You don't have to compromise your principles to do it. Um, and I think for people who aren't, you know, who maybe aren't super dialed into the campaign and aren't paying attention day in and day out, you kind of think, you know, all politicians are the same and you know, everybody's just sort of trying to score points and, um, you know, and, and make their arguments and, 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 uh, you know, is not real and, and people aren't really looking for, um, for solutions. And so I think the more that we can, um, help people see and understand that, you know, that Biden just, you know, he truly believes to his core 
that part of, of, of leading is, is about, you know, finding the path forward and that he believes that we can do that. Um, you know, I think that gives people a sense of hope. Right. So there's two good marching orders for people. Yeah. And it is, I, I think when I talk to like friends of mine, um, let's say who aren't in politics, but follow carefully, like they just assume that everybody knows everything because they follow carefully. I remind people exactly. back back in 08, coming out of the Obama-Clinton primary, which is kind of like a worldwide phenomenon. You know, we turn to the general electorate in June um, as the primary winds down. And these voters that would determine our fate, you know, they didn't know the first thing about them. Yep. And we ended up having to run biography ads, really the entire campaign. You know, we had to track a biography, the entire campaign in Battleground States, just because it was important to get that information in front of people and reinforce. Uh, one other question, though, Kate, on, on where maybe the gap between where you are and you'd like to be. Uh, there's been some research lately our mutual friend Dan Pfeiffer did with change research around younger voters. And, you know, not surprisingly, it showed the, the top argument to get people uh, more motivated um, to both, you know, volunteer in the close here and vote was climate. Yeah. Is that is that another piece where it seems like if, you know, a few million people <laughs> who support Joe Biden would share some of the infographics out there, or some of the speeches that can make a big difference. But is that something you guys may look to intensify here in the close from the campaign? Yeah, it's so it, it has been a it has been a priority for us. It is it will continue to be. It was actually the very first policy that we uh, released in the in the primary last year. The first policy we put out, I think it was June of 2019. Um, you know, we put out our climate plan. It um, it is critically uh, important to to Biden and and I think um, you know we often get asked, uh, especially by young people, you know, so you put out these plans, but you know, how can we know that you're really going to focus on this in the White House? How can we know that you're going to put capital behind it and you're going to work to actually make this happen? And you know. For Biden, his climate plan is his jobs plan. It is his economic plan. It is, you know, it is fully um, integrated into his view of how we get this economy back on track and create jobs for people. It's about, you know, building that um, uh, resilient, clean infrastructure and creating jobs that way. Um, so for him, it's really, you know, he climate is truly integrated into um, you know, his core vision for, for how we get the economy back on track. So, um, so the, the very short answer to your question is yes, absolutely. It will continue to be a focus for us. I think for everybody, um, listening who feels strongly about climate sharing content about his plan is incredibly helpful. You know, the other, I think, um, distinguishing factor about, uh, his climate plan and about the way he talks about climate, um, is, you know, that we were, when we rolled out the um, kind of second plank of our plan, the kind of update to our plan um, earlier this summer, uh, you know, we were able to get, so we had supportive statements from the, from the Sunrise Movement, and we had support from Labor and IBEW. I mean, those are groups that are traditionally, you know, as you well know, at each other's throats. And because of who Biden is, and because of his ability to bring people to the table, you know, he was able to put forward a really bold, really ambitious climate plan. It's almost $2 trillion. It's a massive plan. Um, but he was able to get, you know, support from all across the spectrum, which I, I, I think should give people hope that this is something that we're really going to be able to move on and, and, you know, get done and take real action on uh, if he wins the presidency. Um, so, so yes, I mean, it is, it's incredibly important for us and, and um, you know, for everybody listening the more you can share about his climate plan. If you go to joebiden.com, you can read more about it. Um, 
And the more you can share about it, the better. Right. I think the Sunrise Movement actually put out a great side-by-side infographic uh, today or yesterday that, that also would be a good compliment. So let's talk about the, the next debate. We were supposed to have three presidential debates. Now we have two. And after Trump's disastrous performance in the first debate, um, this is his really last chance uh, to the extent, you know, he can uh, uh, adjust where the race is heading to do that. Kate, I'm, I'm curious. He's unpredictable. But are you guys expecting a repeat of kind of the rabid, frothing, barking dog? Do you think Trump's going to try and rein it in a little bit and actually reach swing voters? Uh, is he going to talk about his second term agenda to the extent he knows what it is? Like, what are you guys anticipating? And, and maybe you're just going to play your own game. And, you know, I think Biden showed the ability in that debate to to kind of deal with Trump when he uh, kind of colored outside the lines. But but what's your sense of what you guys may get from your opponent? I always tell people, like, I think to a lot of people, debates seem easy. You've got your argument, your opponent's got their argument. But like, one, you know, to fully anticipate what your opponent going to do is hard. And secondly, these are human beings. And once, you know, once the light goes on, you never know where it's going to go but kind of what are you guys expecting to the extent you can divide anything out of that craziness on the other side yeah i mean look it's it's always anticipating what donald trump is going to do is is often a fool's errand right but uh, you know I, I mean i think the way we approach this debate is regardless of of you know which version of donald trump shows up regardless of whether he we see a repeat of what he did um you know 2 weeks ago which i think is <laughs> is the real unvarnished Donald Trump. Um, you know, maybe he spends a couple of weeks with his team and decides he wants to to try to polish things and and present a, you know, a less kind of um, aggressive and off-putting version of himself. You know, maybe he does. Um, no matter what, that doesn't change the last four years of his presidency, right? I mean, <laughs> you know, he may, he may decide, he may make a decision. He may, you know, take a step back and say, I need to try to um, make a, a an effort to present a more uh, restrained and, and polished version of of myself here, but it doesn't change the fact that you know what he's going to be defending is a record, a four year record of job loss, four year record of uh, you know uh, of allowing uh, you know tax cuts to go to the wealthiest. It's you know he's going to be defending a, a the last nine months of lying to the American people about the seriousness of the coronavirus and and his unwillingness to to take the the difficult steps to get it under control. So you know he may present a different version of himself, but he's still going to be defending the same record. Um, and I think at the end of the day, that's what matters in these debates. And I think the contrast between Biden, who will uh, you know present his positive vision to the country, who will you know talk about his plans to get people's kids back in school and get small businesses open again and uh, get this virus under control. Um, you know, I think the contrast there will be will be apparent regardless of what style Trump brings to the stage. And what's your anticipation? I mean, you know, back in 2012, you know, when we bombed our first debate with Romney and, you know, John, uh, George W. Bush had a bad first debate, as did Ronald Reagan back in 84. Um, you know, I think in all three of those races, um, you know, Bush and Obama very narrowly, but but had a small lead in the battlegrounds. Reagan obviously had a bigger lead that didn't collapse. But I, th I think all of those three incumbents were kind of put on probation, right? And if they came back and had a decent second and third debate, uh, the race kind of reverted back to where it was. Now you only have one debate. 
Um, and Trump, you know, and I wasn't sure this could happen, Kate, but it does seem after the first debate, you know, that the gap has gotten even larger in polls. Now, polls aren't votes, right? But clearly, yep. Yep. you know, he had a little bit more uh, room to fall and you guys had a little bit more room to grow. So it's kind of a desperate situation for him. I mean, do, so do you think that this is something where, you know, the die is cast, um, you know, could you guys add a little bit uh, if you have a repeat of the first debate? Uh, could Trump gain a little bit back? Like, kind of how do you assess? So that we talk about that through the prism of the debate, but it's probably a question about the race. Like, you know, kind of how much movement is left out there? Well, look, I think, I mean, nothing's over till it's over. So I think especially running against somebody like Donald Trump, who is, you know, incredibly erratic, incredibly unpredictable, Um you know, who's to, who's to say in some ways, three weeks now, less than three weeks is a lifetime. Right. But, um, I do think that Donald Trump has painted a picture over the last four years of, you know, somebody who is not, who is candidly not up to the job, somebody who is erratic, who is unstable, who, you know, as we said, as we were discussing at the earlier on in this, this conversation, who thinks only of himself. Um, you know, and I think, uh, we are, we are in a moment, you know, this is, <laughs> I think this is a race and a cycle probably unlike any other. Um, and I think that over the course of, you know, the last nine months, people have really started to zero in on the belief that who is president matters. I mean, this is, I don't know if this is a frustration you share, but it's always a frustration I have working on races when people say like, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, at the end of the day, does it really impact my life? And I think that what, you know, what we've seen over the last nine months um, has really put into stark relief for people that, uh, that who's president matters, that it does matter. It, it makes a difference in your life if, there, if we have a president who is capable, who's competent, who is, um, you know, taking decisive actions to lead, or if we have a president like Donald Trump, who isn't. Um, so, you know, is there room for movement in the race coming out of the debate or some other unforeseen event of the next three weeks? Of course, I, I think it would be, you know, dishonest of me to say that there isn't. Um, but I do think that uh, basically this, this in particular, this last nine months has been um, very illuminating for people. And I think Trump has had multiple opportunities to, to step up and lead in a time of crisis. He's failed to do that. And, you know, I, I, again, I don't think a debate performance one way or the other um, is going to change that. And, uh, and I think for us, we just have to stay focused on Biden being out there making his case for these last three weeks. Yeah, well, if Trump is a little more muted, I can't wait to see all the immediate takes of new tone, uh, oh, you Lord. know, despite, yeah. despite what he said. No, listen, your point about, you know, people thinking it doesn't matter. To me, that's one of the biggest challenges we face in this country, you know, because the reality is the wars we fight. The wars we fight or don't, the people who die in them or don't, who gets health care or not, how we handle crisis like pandemics or not, you know, who has good schools, who doesn't like at their core, those are political decisions, electoral decisions before they are policy decisions. Like, you know, whoever has the agenda, you know, they're going to run with it. And so we just have to keep bringing people back to that. So, Kate, I'm curious. Um, uh, I always struggle with this, uh, you know, in, in eight and 12, um, you know, just that period from the last debate to Election Day 
is a long time. It seems like it's three years, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and in your case, it's actually less than, than two weeks. But still, you know, and we saw with the Clinton campaign, um, you know, leaving the Comey issue aside for a minute, you know, they thought about doing a fourth debate because their sense was, you know, they were having a hard time keeping the momentum going. And actually, Trump, you know, that was probably the crispest he was in 16, unlike the rolling shit show on wheels that we see today. Okay. But I, I'm curious, like, uh, so from that last debate in particular till um, election day, I mean, do you guys think about that? Like, you know, how do you, you know, you might remember back in, oh, you're in a 30 minute ad in part yeah. just because that was new and different. And, you know, we did a 72 hour campaign day, if I recalled in 12, which sometimes the president was happy with, sometimes he wasn't, yeah. uh, you know, but just to like, you know, keep momentum going. Like, how do you guys think about that? Uh, because I do think it's important, particularly when you're in the lead, which is you kind of don't want to just hang on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, I think it is worth noting that, you know, I think the this uh, debate being on the October 22nd, I think it's the latest that it is. Yeah, been at least in recent years. times. Yeah. So we have yeah. we have slightly less time. But but no, you're absolutely right. I mean, we we are going to want to be uh, focused on on, you know, keeping our momentum. I think, you know, one thing we did coming out of the first debate was, you know, we did this whistle stop tour in Ohio and Pennsylvania. Um and, uh, and it was a great success. It just, it really, you know, it gave Biden the opportunity to, um, you know, to connect with people. Um, you know, obviously it, it ties very, very, uh, closely to his own, uh, life experience riding the train back and forth, uh, from Washington to Wilmington when he was, uh, was in the Senate. Um, so, you know, we're thinking about, uh, a number of things like that. We will, we will absolutely be looking for, you know, creative ways to, um, you know, to have him out connecting with people. We believe that he's strongest. Uh, and I think it's, it is very clear that he's strongest when he's, you know, when he's talking to real people, when he's, um, you know, able to, uh, as I say, bring his own life experience to, to the conversation, um, so we we found that that whistle stop tour coming out of the first debate was a very successful model, and I think uh, you know if not exactly uh, a whistle stop, I think you can expect to see some um, some creative campaigning like that. Now, obviously, we are uh, you know as everyone is, we're grappling with with COVID and right. um, the restrictions that we have to put in place to keep our events safe, to keep the communities that we're visiting safe. Um, which puts a, a little bit of a damper on our creativity sometimes, unfortunately. <laughs> but um, but yes, we will we will definitely be uh, working to maximize momentum in that in that last run up to election day. Because um, you're right, it's incredibly important. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the tools you're going to have is surrogates, and, and now you're going to have Barack Obama on the ground in battleground states. Uh, what's interesting about this, I think people look back at Obama and assume, well. It's big crowds and rallies and energy. So, you know, because he'll be uh, uh, safe as you guys are, that won't be the case. But it's still going to, I think, to your point about local media, like he'll be there and you're going to get outsized coverage. So talk a little bit about, you know, how you're going to use him uh, and other key surrogates in the close. So that's exactly right. Obviously, local media is a huge piece of it. Um, but I think surrogates is a place where we've been, um, you know, we've we've been particularly successful, uh, in terms of creating digital content and creating, you know, unique opportunities. I mean, you were, you may remember the, um, the socially distanced conversation that, uh, that president Obama and the VP did earlier in the campaign got, it got an enormous amount of traction online. I think it was one of our most shared, most viewed, um, uh, campaign videos of, of the entire campaign, uh, online. So, 
you know, in addition to um, doing travel where we can, because obviously there's no, you know, there's no, uh, there's no full replacement for physically being somewhere. And, um, you know, as you say, talking to the local press and, and, you know, having your picture on the front page of the paper immediately recognizable to everybody who reads that paper that you're there in the market on the ground. Obviously, you know, you can't fully replace that. Um, but I think there is a tremendous amount that we can do to, um, you know, to build on it, uh, in terms of our, our digital content. And, um, you know, we've seen that creating content for, um, uh, particularly for non-political kind of non-traditional political, uh, platforms has been really beneficial. You know, we've done a lot of surrogate work. Um, my colleague, Adrian Elrod has done a, a, an excellent job building out um, something we call Team Joe Talks, which is, um, uh, which is basically a, a, a surrogate network where we, we have campaign staff or we have high profile surrogates sit down with celebrities and influencers on Instagram who have huge followings of their own. Um, and have conversations about the, you know, about the VP, about Kamala Harris, about the campaign. Um, and we've gotten, uh, you know, a, a, a tremendous amount of lift doing that as well. So um, I think that'll be the, the, the key challenge for us. We'll be layering in that, you know, creative digital piece on top of the local travel that we will be doing to the best of our ability, you know, to, to, to the extent that we can do it and, and keep everybody safe. Uh, that's very helpful, I think, for people to understand how you guys think about that. I, I will just add one point to our discussion about that momentum at the end. You mentioned the debates historically late, 10 days out. And then, of course, the other thing is by that last debate, you'll probably have 25, 30 million people have voted. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot more votes coming off the table. Kate, you've been very generous with your time. I know how busy you are. Just one last question. So you're obviously managing um, a whole communications team and infrastructure and plan around the election, you know, helping reach people that still could register or turn out and swing voters and focused on states and markets and surrogates. Um, and that's hard enough. Um, and listen, you know, my sense is we're going to have a clear winner here and it will know it before too long and all these ridiculous scenarios about what Trump could do to try to steal the election further away. But how much time are you having to plan for you know, November 4th, November 5th, even if it's not the like crazy Trump stuff, but we still counting votes potentially in some states. So what I'm just curious, like how you guys are going about planning for that period post-election, um, again, with, with the knowledge that you don't have enough time in the day to, to do everything you want to do pre-election. Yeah. Um, so so it is something we're planning for, of course. Um, it would be negligent not to. Um, but, uh, you know, we are our, our primary focus uh, obviously is getting enough votes to win the election. And we are not losing sight of that. However, um, you know, we are putting together a very robust election protection plan. I think it is um, arguably or maybe inarguably the largest election protection effort um, that any campaign has ever put together. We have um, lawyers who are going to be deployed across the country um, we are thinking through uh, a number of different scenarios to ensure that we are, you know, planning for every possible contingency. Um, you know, we, we, we will not be caught flat-footed by a uh, hundred different potential outcomes. I think the primary communications challenge for us, or, or I should say, I guess the primary communications goal um, in, in the next few weeks, as we are, you know, simultaneously putting in place the the legal framework for post-election day, should we need it, 
I think the primary communications goal for us is to um, uh, to encourage people to vote to um, not allow them to you know let Donald Trump discourage them from voting or make them feel like their vote isn't going to count or you know like he's going to be able to uh, pull some sort of um, you know shenanigans that are going to uh, impact the outcome of the election. I think what you know what we want to be um, reassuring people is that you know, the way to get Donald Trump out of office is to turn out in huge numbers on November 3rd and in the weeks leading up where you can early vote um, and vote him out. Donald Trump is not going to get to determine the outcome of this election. The American people are going to determine the outcome of this election. So it is absolutely something that we are are working on. Um, there is a lot of thought uh, going into the, the uh, effort to ensure that we are prepared, um, you know, should there be counting that uh, needs to happen beyond the third. Um, but our, our primary focus and our, and our primary communications objective um, is to reassure people and encourage them to turn out because at the end of the day, that's, that's actually going to be what decides this election. It does frustrate me, by the way, that somehow, and, and I'm not suggesting this is wholesale, but you see there's kind of uh, some, you know, narrative around, well, if Biden just wins by a landslide or if Biden wins Florida, it's like, well, actually, he just needs to get enough votes to get to 270. Like, let's not change the rules here. It really drives me crazy. Uh, but that being said, you know, a, a dominant win would be uh, most important because it rejects Trumpism, but uh, but also would would accelerate, um, you know, the transition, uh, which is uh, which is great. Well, listen, Kate, thank you for your time today and, and for all you've done um, in the campaign. And yeah, and I hope uh, you know somehow, some way, you and your team can can stay upright. I'm sure you will for the stretch drive here. Uh, and enjoy it because, you know, there's nothing like the close of a presidential campaign. That's, that's right. Thank you so much. This is this was a treat for me. Thank you. Thanks, Kate.